And so Jesus is going to really tear off the veneer that this man had put over his life, thinking that he was just fine. And he's going to use the law to show him that he's not good at all. That there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. And one of the functions of the law is to show men their sin. When you look in the mirror, you see the dirt on your face. When you look in the mirror of Scripture, you see the dirt on your soul. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl is currently in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's join Pastor Carl as he reminds us that one of the functions of the law is to show men their own sin. Understand, God never chooses a person on the basis of who that person is. God always chooses a person on the basis of what that person can become. Now, think your way through this. God does not choose a poor person because he's poor. He chooses him because, according to James, notice he's rich in faith. And God does not reject a rich man because he's rich. He rejects him because he's poor in faith. You know it, that many of God's choicest servants in Scripture were very rich. Men like Abraham, King David, Joseph, and Job, to name just a few. And then there are examples who are sprinkled through the New Testament church. Think about Joseph of Arimathea. Think about Nicodemus, who's converted. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a very wealthy class. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch who served the Queen of Ethiopia. He owned his own scroll. That's expensive. You are wealthy if you can do that. Think about Cornelius in Acts 10 or Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in Acts 13, or Lydia, the one who had a business in dyeing purple cloth in Acts 16. But with that said, just know that rich people have always been a minority in the body of Christ, wherever you go in the world. Right out in your margin next to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Let me read it to you. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not wise so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Lady Huntington, a very rich and wealthy woman of English nobility, had John and Charles Wesley as her close friends. And this highly cultured woman read 1 Corinthians 1, and she said, I was saved by the letter M. God did not say any, but not many. He didn't say not any wise, any noble, not many. You see, God chooses the poor man because he tends to be rich in faith, and he tends to reject the rich man because he tends to be poor in faith. Now understand, God chooses in the fashion that he does because as we're instructed by Samuel, for God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God chooses the poor because they're rich in faith. But understand that problem, uh, riches are never a problem for God. They are only a problem for man. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 10? Let me read it to you. 
He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the parable of the sower, he tells us why it is so difficult. Listen to these words from Mark 4.18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who've heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the world word and it becomes unfruitful. God's word doesn't always find its place in the heart of a rich, wealthy man. Why? Because he's consumed with his wealth, and so he's driven by worry, uh, sometimes a lust for more. Sometimes he finds a false security in what he owns rather than in a relationship with the living God. And so very often, sadly, the rich man tends to put his trust in what he has, and since the poor man doesn't have any of those things, many times he has no other place to turn but to the Lord. So it is hard for the rich man who has everything in the sight of man to enter the kingdom of God because very often his priorities are out of whack. Do you remember that encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler? It's good to read all the accounts. A man whom Jesus said he loved. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, your definition of goodness depends often on your view of God. We tend to measure goodness in relationship to one another. But Jesus is saying, to really, truly call someone good, there's only one who is good, that is the Lord God himself. This is not a denial of his deity. This is actually an affirmation of his deity because this man doesn't have it. He's calling him good, but he doesn't really see him as Lord. And so Jesus is going to really tear off the veneer that this man had put over his life, thinking that he was just fine. And he's going to use the law to show him that he's not good at all. That there's only one who is good, and that is God alone. And one of the functions of the law is to show men their sin. When you look in the mirror, you see the dirt on your face. When you look in the mirror of Scripture, you see the dirt on your soul And so as Luther would say, the function of the law is not to justify you, but to terrify you. And so Jesus uses the law as a tutor, to use Paul's metaphor, to lead us to faith in Christ. So Jesus said to him in Luke 18, 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now listen to the rich man's reply. He said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So Jesus puts his finger on the real issue to show this man how deeply fallen and depraved he really is. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You see, his problem was not simply that he had a lot of wealth, but the wealth that he had owned him. And so Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, with all due respect, I've heard more nonsense preached on this verse, unlike others, maybe more on this verse than any other verse I can think of in the New Testament. Here's a picture of a needle gate, as it's often called. This is an old, old picture, and it's there in Jerusalem on one of the walls. And so when people came into the city, especially at night for security, they would open what today people are calling the needles gate. And they would unload the camel. And as the next picture shows, the camel would have to stoop down and basically walk through on his fours to get into the city. And of course, when you come to one of these sites in Jerusalem, everyone takes out their camera. The Israeli guide goes on and pontificates about, you know, the needle's gate that you read in the Bible, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. Luke, as you know, is a doctor. Dr. Luke, we call him. Paul's personal physician. And God, the Holy Spirit, inspired him to use a word for needle that refers to a surgical needle. And Matthew, in the parallel account, uses a uh, word that can refer either to a surgical needle or to a sewing needle. No way a camel could get through that. A total impossibility. And even the disciples who at time were a little bit hard-hearted, they got it. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Do not ever forget whatever the situation is, God can work because salvation is not first and foremost a work of man for God. It is a work of God for man. And God is compassionate. God is loving. God will do everything in his power to stir the circumstances, even the way Jesus uniquely addressed this rich man. He wouldn't call every man to sell everything he had, but because he loved this man, the text says, he reached him in the way in which he needed to be reached. And so here in James 2.5, God describes the poor man as rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Yes, God has done that. He's describing those poor who are rich in faith, and in doing so, he's not telling the poor man to snub the rich man. And he's not telling the rich man to snub the poor man because the poor man might actually be a spiritual millionaire. There are some people who will be poor throughout this life, but they will be very rich in the next. And there are some who are very rich in this life who will be bankrupt in the next. And some Christians who are very rich in this life, but because of the way they use their riches, they'll be very poor, so to speak, in their reward seated Christ. It all depends on whether or not you walk by faith. Adoniram Judson was the very first missionary to leave American soil and to go overseas. In the early years of our country, people would ask for people from the United Kingdom to come here to help reach the pagan Indians and others and to fill pulpits as the American culture grew. But there came a time when Adoniram Judson said, well, God has called us even as Americans to make disciples of all nations. So of all places in the world, he is the first foreign missionary from American soil, and he leaves a little town called Worcester, Massachusetts, where I am from. He prayed. 
He fasted, he labored for hours, for decades. Saw very little happen at first, 20 years before his first convert. He's arrested, he's hung up by his thumbs, he's then cut down and thrown into a dirty, nasty prison, and his persecutors ask him, now tell us about your plans to win the heathen to your Christ." To which in faith, Judson responded, my future is as bright as the promises of God. You see, every poor person, every rich person, any person can be rich in faith if they walk in faith according to the dictates of Scripture and be multi-millionaires in the coming kingdom to come. Now he says in verses 6 and 7, don't miss it, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich man who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, they do. Do they not blaspheme the fair name of God by which you've been called? Yes, they do. So James is speaking of the wealthy ruling class who especially persecuted the early church. Just read the book of Acts. Classic example, the Sanhedrin. They persecuted the apostles because they were threatened by so many followers that the apostles had. We know from Acts 17, you have rich and wealthy, hardcore pagans in Ephesus who persecuted the Christians there because so many people were one to Christ. The sales of these rich people collapsed as they were trying to sell their little shrines, their little idols of that goddess Artemis. And of course, when you persecute a true follower of Christ, you are, you are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Paul, whatever you, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says in the Olivet Discourse, whatever you do, the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And so James can say they are blaspheming the fair name of Jesus. And so in explaining the principle here of partiality, he first underscores that it represents God's method as to how he works. He looks for those who are rich in faith. But secondly, he underscores that it misrepresents God's law. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. The royal law, it's the law of the king, as revealed through a conversation Jesus had on one occasion with a scribe. Remember it? Put it out in the margin, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, you need to understand that in the first century, people didn't hang around asking superficial questions like, who's going to win the Super Bowl? They had questions about which of the 613 laws are important? How do we apply them? I mean, one of their favorite pastimes was discussing the Word of God. And so Jesus answers this scribe by quoting the Shema. Jesus answered, the foremost is Shema, Hebrew, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's vertical, your relationship to God. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's horizontal. You love your neighbor without partiality. That's the royal law. That's the law of the king. That's the one that James is quoting. 
And while we are here, I should say parenthetically that Jesus broadened the definition of a neighbor to include any needy human being that God gives you the opportunity to minister to, either people who are needy physically or people everywhere you look who are needy spiritually. The king's commandment, the royal law, reflects the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his sovereign law that men will someday be judged by, and there'll be no court of appeal. Let's keep reading. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is teaching us that to show partiality is to misrepresent God's law. He calls it here a transgression of the law. It's not just a breach of manners. It's sin. You say, but I'm only human. And so in order to drive home the point, notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, we are considered lawbreakers if we break just one law, if you just break break one link in the law. If you're hanging over a cliff and you're holding on to a chain that's five feet long, you're not there thinking, well, the third link is not all that important, or maybe the 27th link, that, that one can go. Every link is important. It's all held together by a single chain. And so don't think, as many of the Jews thought in their day, that somehow these laws are disconnected. Notice the argument, verse 11. That's why he can say, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He is connecting the Ten Commandments together, and so partiality is a form of hatred, and hatred is connected to murder in Scripture. In fact, if you take the sin of partiality and you connect it to the Ten Commandments, either directly or indirectly, it breaks every one of the Ten Commandments. The First and Second Commandments are broken when you show partiality because you are idolizing your point of view, your opinion over what God has said. The third commandment is broken when you show partiality because you are misrepresenting the name of God and how he thinks and what he stands for. You're taking his name in vain. The fourth commandment is broken when you show favoritism because on the day of worship, you're defiling the place of worship that he has called you to as people of different stripes come in. The fifth commandment is broken by dishonoring the poor because then, in essence, our parents are dishonored by the way we are living. The sixth commandment is broken when you show partiality. Why? Because to hate your brother is to be a murderer. The seventh commandment is broken when you show favor to the rich and the powerful and you show partiality towards the poor. Why? Because you are acting with infidelity and unfaithfulness something that James is going to underscore for us before we are done that he will call in essence spiritual adultery. The eighth commandment is broken when you show favoritism from the poor because you are stealing from them because you are implying that they are worse, less than the rich man is or whatever level you are doing it on. 
The ninth commandment is broken because to bear false witness by saying he's not important, but he is. That's a wicked thing. And then finally, the 10th commandment of covetousness, it is broken because you are saying what is valuable in life is what the rich man has and what the poor man does not. Now, you could take it and you could extend that partiality to just about every realm of life you can think of. You see, in the Jews' mind in the first century, as seen in the Gospels, and the kinds of dialogues that they had with Christ, many times in their minds, these various commandments were unrelated. And they might reason in their mind, well, I've got all these over here that I'm doing well, and this is a plus, and the plus outweighs the negatives. And people are not that much different today. But James is saying, if you break one of the law, you've broken them all. It's like breaking a window pane. If you throw a rock through a window... You haven't just broken part of the window. You've broken the whole window. And so whoever breaks one point of the law, the Bible says, has become guilty of it all. We're all lawbreakers. Not because we've broken every single law. Only one law was enough to make you guilty. Now, people can rationalize and they say, well, you know, I've never done this or I've never done that. One sin is enough to condemn you. I had a friend who was a physician some 30 years ago, and he told me of a very deadly poison. He said, Carl, if you get a drop of this in your mouth, as soon as it's in your bloodstream, it will kill you within a minute. It doesn't matter if you take a drop or you drink a bottle. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in just one point because God is so absolutely holy, it's like you broke it all. Now, very quickly, the principle of partiality applied. There are two basic applications that we find in this study. The first is to understand that the Bible and not our background must be our benchmark. That's what he's saying here in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged according to the law of liberty. In other words, don't excuse partiality or discriminating attitudes or actions like, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way I was raised, or I'm only human, because God will judge you according to the Word of God, that it's called here the law of liberty, because when you obey the law of liberty, there's tremendous freedom that comes. The believer who is a slave to the will of God is the person who's truly, genuinely free. Submission to God's law is what brings meaning in this life. Lord, whatever you want from me, I will do. Whatever attitudes I have that are disruptive to your kingdom and displeasing to your heart, I want you to change. Then he makes a second application in verse 13 by reminding us that ultimately we are accountable to God for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that statement needs to be put in the context of this epistle and, of course, the rest of the Bible. James wants us to understand that the person who's characterized by classism or partiality or prejudice or favoritism is a merciless person. The person who's characterized by that and such a person is lost and God will show him no mercy. 
And he's going to key off of that concept in the next paragraph that we will unfold, God willing, in our next time together. Because he's going to deal with people who say they are Christians, but their lifestyle denies it. And what a sad thing it will be for some to wake up in hell thinking that they were headed towards heaven. Men and women, God is in the business of changing people. He wants to change the lost man, and he wants to grow the saved man. Biblical Christianity will revolutionize your life. It is the most powerful revolutionary thing there is because only biblical Christianity can change the human heart. But it begins with a relationship with Christ. And if you're in the sound of my voice today and you're not sure that heaven is your home, then it's not. And God wants it to be. And you're not sure because you're not sure you're good enough. And you're not. And you never can be. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you will come bankrupt and put your full weight on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that he can change you and command you as your master, he will change you for all of eternity. Many of you have crossed that line, and James is one of those little books that is packed with application. And he's encouraging us because he wants us to go further in our walk. He wants to peel back the veneer of spirituality and show us what we are really like so that God can continue to change us to the glory of God. Now, our Father, thank you that in your view, there are no unimportant people in this world. And in the end, you said that we will fully understand that when the first will be last and the last will be first. But you who are rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have saved us through faith and not of ourselves. It is your absolutely amazing gift, not earned by good works so that no one can brag. But you told us that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that once we are saved to do good works, that you prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. And so we ask that as we work through this epistle in the months ahead, that our hearts would be pliable and soft, that you would be able to speak to us, that because of our exposure to Scripture and our application of it, that we would be more like Jesus Christ. I thank you for what you have given us in this church, and I pray that we might excel even more. In Jesus' name, amen. God is in the business of changing people. He wants to change the lost man and grow the saved man. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 005. 
Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line live at wagp.net. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his message from the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.